Chick, trip, dope, pad, heavy, cool, scene, man, beat, freak, weed, bang, square, blast, cat, gas. Do those words remind you of the 50s, 60s or 70s, as they do me? This is the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates. And in this episode, we're going to meet somebody who can tell us all about words like that, all about slang. And he also happens to be the author of my favourite book on the counterculture, Days in the Life. Voices from the English Underground, 1961 to 1971. Journalist, writer, lexicographer, the man who interviewed over 120 people from the counterculture for that wonderful book. He is Jonathan Green, and it's a pleasure to have him here. Hello, Jonathan. Hello. It's a delight to be here too. Well, Jonathan, I, I gave a bit of an intro then, but actually I generally prefer it with guests um, rather than me butcher their bio if they give a proper introduction to themselves. So why don't you tell us, who is Jonathan Green? Well, what I put on books now is Jonathan Green is the world's greatest slang lexicographer, but that's actually embarrassing. Um, anyway, I would stress that if I am the greatest, it's because there's only five of us in the world and the others seem to have given up. Um, so I'm the only. Um, I, I was born in 1948, um, lived outside London on the whole, went to boarding school at 10, which was late in those days, but it was early enough for me, um, made my way gradually towards university which which was oxford where there was a certain there was a definite countercultural input and i picked up on it as did my friends with both hands and then after that i came to london in 1969 which is really when this starts and in london in july 69 i because i'd been the the pop correspondent as much as i was capable for the university newspaper um i sent a letter to rolling stone now rolling stone had opened up in the uk incredibly glam incredibly glam Huge, great office um, in Hanover Square, a catty corner from Vogue. I mean, it was, you know, it was just so, so, so fab. This was, you know, Mick, Mick Jagger had put his money in. That sofa over's there where he fucks Marianne. That sofa over, I mean, God knows what people, you know, it was all nonsense. But the fact is, it was that, it was this feeling of, of, of being touching, touching the Did grave. you have this sense then, this is 1969, so already stuff as kicking off. In the UK, you know, the counterculture, the underground, if you like, is in full swing. And you're aware of that as a, maybe as a teenager, you're aware of that as a student, and you're thinking, I want some of that, and I'm going to move to London, I'm going to get a job at Rolling Stone. I, I, I have to be honest at this point. What I first did, because there was a huge tradition of this, of people working on a university newspaper called Charwell, then going to what was then called, and still I guess is, Fleet Street. Only Fleet Street was Fleet Street. And I got an appointment to go... First thing I did, I, wrote, I also wrote to the Sunday Times. I tra and Michael Bateman, who ran a column called Atticus, said to me, well, come in, we'll, we'll have lunch, we'll chat. So you've got a, here is this young man, 21, two weeks out of Oxford, something like that. This is the world, as far as he's concerned, this is the world's greatest newspaper. And he turns up at the front door. Jonathan Green, I've come to see Michael Bateman. He's not there. He's got an appointment. He's out. I thought, oh, well, fuck that. I, I'd written to Rolling Stone as well, and they'd said, oh, well, write us a couple of reviews. One of them was the Soft Machine number two, the second Soft Machine album. 
Um, I doubt if I made a particularly good fist of it, but I wrote something. And I turned up at Rolling Stone feeling pretty down, but, you know, Rolling Stone, as I say, was hugely glam. And and Alan Markerson, who was then editing it, um, and who's become, as the years have passed, one of my greatest friends, um, said, basically, after a bit of chit-chat, said, look, you know, do you want to be the news editor? <laughs> so I said, well, that'd be nice. Well, just like uh, that? Ju- pretty much just like that. Yeah, wow. that was the counterculture. And I said, all right, I've, you know, I'll do that. And he said, well, we'll pay you 20 quid a week. I'm still waiting. And um, I went in probably, let's say, the next week and started. And I then, a week or two later, got a postcard from Michael Bateman saying, oh, oh, terribly sorry. Um, my The PA wasn't my PA. She was just a temp for the day. I never put things in my diary and I was going to give you a job. What? And I didn't go back to Sunday Times. I used to, I did a couple of years of holiday relief for them and that was quite fun. That must have been super exciting. So you've gone from being at Oxford as a student straight to becoming news editor of Rolling Stone. Oh, it was great fun because, I mean, you, you had, I mean... Basically, you, you, it was down to you. I was writing... I mean, the worst possible thing to have at 21 was the, was the facility to write 20,000 20, words every fortnight with absolutely no editing except for your own. I mean, can you imagine how bad that was? But that's what I was doing. I want to hear what, what the rest of your life was like, what you looked like, where you were living. So let's just set, set the scene a bit here. I had the fag end of a... Of a I think I had a grey velvet suit... That I'd bought while I was in Oxford for £17.50, 10 as it was in those days, £17.10, um, in Carnaby Street, God help me. It was extremely tight fit, but it was very beautiful. And all that was left of that, I think, was the jacket, and that's what I used to wear as a jacket. I do seem to remember buying a full-length leather coat at one stage, overcoat. God, I wish I still had it. Long gone. Reasonably long hair, which obviously got longer, but not not... Mega long, I wouldn't say. Shoulders, probably, maybe a little bit more. Um, you know, I, it wasn't for me wanting to cut it. It was just that maybe that's as much as it was willing to offer me. Um, glasses. And where were you living? Um, good question. Where was I living? Around. Let's put it this way. I worked out once in my first two years or whatever it was in London, I lived on 20, 22 different floors. I wow. didn't have anywhere specific to live. But in those days, you know, I, I mean, one place I know was, was you know, SW, I, you know, SW1, all sorts of exciting. You know, it was all terribly, terribly smart areas. Terribly smart now, but actually, yes. uh, but then well, very livable, more, right? much more livable than they are now. I mean, King, I mean, the King's Road, I think, was still coming up, as they mm-hmm. say. Um, you know, it was just friends I had and, and, and a lot of people. And not until about 73... Power Square in Notting Hill, which then was a complete... I mean, Power Square then was, I mean, was performance era. Performance to film, right, yeah. So it was all... It was, and, and Portobello was completely different. I mean, mm. it was pre-gentrification. It was poor. Mm. It was poor and it was multiculty, and it was a much, in my opinion, better place. Well, it's interesting because we're going to come back to it in, in your book, but, you know, what's fascinating for me is that a lot of the addresses that get mentioned in here... You think that couldn't possibly go on at that address now? Not not just because the culture's changed, but because economically changed. You know, I mean, Cromwell Road and West London—they just completely out of the reach of anybody who's remotely countercultural these days. No, right? I mean, I I don't. I well, the difference is, I mean, I used to, you know, be there, wander around it, 
any time of day or night, no people to go and see, get stoned, whatever mm. it might be. But now, I mean, I never go, I don't go to Notting Hill from one year to the next. <laughs> quite that, literally, quite literally. I don't know what it's like anymore. Well, I was there yesterday. I mean, it's still very nice. But, I, but of course, you know, for me, it's a bit like, well, read, you know, reading your book or reading other books from the era, it's just like, it's a completely different place. But so I, what I'm interested in is, is that did you have this sense then? I mean, I've, I, I ask guests this because I'm f- fascinated by it myself. Did you have this sense that, you were part of something. So, you, okay, you're, you're news editor Rolling Stone, but this thing, the underground, the counterculture, it's just, you know, it's a smallish scene in London. I know it's, it's it's ballooning and it's spreading out to the rest of the UK and, of course, it's around America and Western Europe. But did it feel like a thing? What, what one realised pretty damn quickly is how small it was. Mm. I mean, it really was. I mean, I've never done a count. There's no way to do a count. But it was, I mean, Days in the Life, my book, is... You know, you know, mistakenly, but these were the people who I wanted to interview. Um, and they were the movers and the shakers, I guess, most of them. And they were in London because England is a very small country and people gravitate to London. Yeah, well, we're going to come back to the writing of Days in the Life. But let's just go back to you. You're at Rolling Stone. And so, in fact, in a way, let's sort of fast forward through those 10 years before you start to write this book so because then you get involved in not just in rolling stone but you get involved in the free so-called free press as well what happened with rolling stone was that jan wenner the uber boss the founder in san francisco didn't like what we were doing it wasn't enough like the san francisco one and i would be the first to agree with him it wasn't 1967, as I recall it, January, issue number 27, the groupie issue of Rolling Stone. I mean, that exploded in, I mean, a friend of mine bought one in Oxford and it was just an explosion. I mean, it was, all right, the groupies, again, it was, you know, sex sells as we all know, but it was another fucking world. I mean, it was just, well, of course it was, it was the West Coast, so on and so forth. But it, and and you started buying Rolling Stone. First of all, you had to find the damn thing. But once you'd found it, you started buying it. And that was really, I mean, it was after IT appeared, but and just about the same time as Oz, maybe a little earlier. But it was a huge thing. So to get this, I mean, with the greatest respect to those I worked with, perhaps not to myself, um, we were not terribly good at this. I mean, you know, I I don't know who'd hired the original people. I know when I came over and so on and so forth. But we weren't as good as we should have been, to put it mildly. And what happened, there was a notorious party which Mark Boland was spiked with acid, with LSD. At Rolling Stone. At, at the Rolling Stone party. And this caused a lot of trouble. And when I said, you know, you don't treat the talent like that, or words to that effect, I'm not saying he said, but it was basically... And, and he made it very clear that what mattered was the business, or that was made, and we were not doing it the right way. We, would, we were too much counter and not enough culture. I Got think it. it right, right, right. Um, so, okay, so his objection was not that you were, it wasn't San Francisco or it wasn't West Coast enough because you were being too too British in some way? Or you, I, I you, think you, it you was were, just, I just think he felt we weren't coming up with the goods. You were professional enough. We weren't, yes, I think that's a very good word because that's exactly what it was. Mm. I mean, and, and well, I, all I can say for myself is I wanted to be professional, but I was learning. Mm-hmm. And I and I, to an extent, learnt, but I've never been a, a proper journalist. What so what the- happened was that he basically said, "Right, you're out, you're finished. Give us back the office. Fuck off." And we then decamped to the basement flat, 
in what's that big square in Earl's Court? Redcliffe, not Redcliffe Square, is it? Redcliffe Square, yeah, 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 yeah. And so we did that. Somehow, Alan Markerson, who was you know running, was was in charge, and we we managed to get one check for advertising from from somebody sixty quid, I think it was, and we managed to cash it. And immediately, Alan and I waltzed off, you know, counterculture, yeah, off to Harrods Food Hall and got some food. I mean, that's appalling, really. <laughs> Alan ran into these people. They had a bunch of different properties. And as you probably found when you were talking about Barney Bubbles, one of them contained Barney, which was 305 Portobello Road. But anyway, we were given this, this, this office, and that's where we decamped to. And, of course, it was a very different Portobello Road in those days. It was poor. Portobello and- Road was, was, I mean, it was kind of not exactly counterculture central, but it was kind of countercultural west, wasn't it? I mean, it, it was, was very much so. I mean, you'd also got an, an bit, and there were plenty. I mean, Oz was up the road off off um, Holland Park Avenue. And IT always stayed in the West End, right until the end in 74, when it came to Portobello. But by then, I don't think Friends existed. Friend, but the reason it was called, the reason, what, what happened was that Alan wanted to call the spin-off, let's call it, the Exiles from Rolling Stone, Friends of Rolling Stone, no way, says Wenner, you can't use the words Rolling Stone. So it ended up being called Friends, which sounds appalling hippie shit, which indeed it was. This was Friends spelt in standard English way, I-F-R-I-E-N-D-S. Friends with a Z, with a Z, I didn't have anything to do with. I'd left by then. That was other people. You've kind of went, so you went, kind of went mainstream with Rolling Stone, but now you've gone even deeper into counterculture. So you're in, you're in Portobello Road rather than Hanover Square, and you're setting up this new publication and it was that time of course wasn't it so you know like you mentioned it and oz and what what distinguished what you were doing with friends from it and oz what, what was very the... good question i i mean we it, it was down to the the personalities um obviously richard neville at oz had already been a, had had a big trial had been a star in australia w- within his world um and had come here you know to immediately got interviewed by the evening standard etc and so on knew lots of people so oz was quite small g glam um it was also the most psychedelic i would suggest then you've got it which had started off very much as the product of old beatniks in fact, Beats, and was in. It was very much the brainchild of people like Miles, Barry Miles, um, black and white, no psychedelia, bit of naughty drugs, but basically quite, very much rooted in things like Aldermaston and stuff like that. So quite activist. It was. It was. It was activist. Mm. And by by the I suppose seventy, I guess it was. Mick Farron had taken over, and it became very very brash and very rock and roll in every sense of the word, and much more designed, and colour, I think there was colour, and anyway, much more of a lively, probably, I mean, you know, on a class, I've never thought of this before, but if Oz was the upper classes, Friends was the middle, and, and IT was the working class, which is bullshit because everybody was middle class, of course. <laughs> but, but the fact is that you could look at it that way. Mm. What Alan Markerson was, um, he was very interested in experimental stuff. 
He was interested in psychology and things of that nature. So we had a lot of writing of that sort, a lot of experimental stuff. We had Bill Burroughs write something, so on and so forth. Meanwhile, I did news, much better news, dare I say, than I'd done in the in, in Rolling Stone. Um, I actually rang people up and asked them things. <laughs> and we did a lot of rock and roll. I mean, that's how it started. It started off very much as a spin-off from Rolling Stone. But by the time we got to 1970, because this all happened in the last quarter of 69, by the time we got to 1970, it, we, we, Alan knew what he wanted to do. I brought in my oldest friend, Pierce Marchbank, who is a graphic designer of great acclaim, who went on to design Time Out. Um, but he, he, so he made it a very slick object. I mean, very, very modernist, very tight piece of paper. Well, several pieces of paper. And so that changed it. I mean, we were certainly the best designed. I mean, we found, and Pierce, who's very professional, found the likes of likes of the, the, the sort of hippie designers um, just atrocious. But, that, but that's quite interesting because, uh, you know, talking to Paul Gorman about Barney Bubbles, who's obviously been in the building next door, you mentioned him earlier. Uh, I mean, his work incredible and went on being so like all the way through the 70s didn't it pierce was a huge fan of barney did you have a sense either you personally or you kind of collectively in terms of friends of actually being part of this thing and also sort of servicing it in some way so that so the, call it the underground or whatever what want to call it did it feel like that or was it just something much more nebulous? We, we were in the end trying to write newspapers which told people about what was going on in the counterculture we were not we were not activist journalists. Not, not, I wouldn't have said so. Although there were events that, like the famous David Frost show Invasion by various members of the counterculture when Jerry Rubin, the American hippie, yippie, sorry, yippie, was on it. This is a couple of years, a year later. It was 70, I guess. Maybe 71. Maybe 71. And that had a lot of underground press people jumping up and shouting. We weren't out there doing something like squatting. In the end, if you were going to try and commit yourself to your newspaper, you had to do the work for your newspaper and you couldn't go off and do the other stuff. But it's interesting, you know, talking to Jenny Fabian in, in her book, Groupie, she very much describes the scene. I think she refers to it as the scene. And, it, and to a reader, you get this impression of this kind of slightly, it's slightly charmed in a circle. And then there's people around it, managers, you know, writers, novelists, uh, Tom Keynes, etc. Look, let's be frank, it must have felt being very cool. It did. It, it, it absolutely did. You're absolutely right. I'm not sure to what extent one paused, but mm. it did inform your attitudes to an extent. As I said, suddenly you can get tickets for everything you've ever wanted. You can get free books. You can get, even more important, free records. In fact, they press them on you. They're keen for you to have them because you might write about them. So you're quite high status. Well, they, it, was, it was the knock-on from Rolling Stone, I would imagine. I fear we were not as respectful of the great amorphous bunch of hippies out there in God knows where um, that, that we might perhaps should have been. Oh, did you share in that sense that something important was going on, the world was changing or potentially could be changed, you know, uh, you know that kind of idealism of those late 60s that, you know, whether you want to call it the age of Aquarius or whatever you want to call it, but did you have that sense or were you a bit more outside, a bit more cynical about that stuff? I was always immeasurably cynical but that that is not to say that I, I wasn't part of a generation who still believed in the omnipotence of progress we'd grown up into progress progress had continued we had benefited from progress define it as you wish and here we were one might say at least 
looking in on the cutting edge of what was currently considered progress um, in a social way, counterculture. And we were very optimistic about, well, we were, we, the problem was is that when you actually got someone sat down and said, right, I will now write about what this thing, the, revo, the revolution is, it was, it, it, it was either full on left, which I certainly couldn't, couldn't get with. I was never very good at all that. Or it was some amorphous hippie stuff and we'll all hold hands in the country and it'll all be fine. So that was harder to deal with. But the idea of progress being something that would sustain, I think we were probably the last generation to have that privilege. Mm. Or one might say that naivety. Mm. But at the time it did feel like that. But I mean, one did sort of feel part of something, I guess. But I would have been hard put to to define what it was. One of the things that it was was being 21 having a job one loved in a great city <laughs> and, you know, just having a good time. I mean, I'm afraid it's, you know... And, and, and I guess also as you moved into the 70s, things are becoming more political in the counterculture. And it's, what's interesting to me, you know, learning about this stuff is that a lot of things that later became and still are very important, green movement, gay rights, women's rights, a lot of that stuff got going in the early 70s, right? So the counterculture had become quite effective in some ways. You know, and it, I, it, got, was... it got less hippie and more kind of activist, didn't it, in some ways? Absolutely. I mean, we had a, a, a pull-out section in Friends called the Whole Earth Catalogue. Whole Earth Catalogue, like many of these things, came from California, but it was about alternative ways of living and you know, very interesting. And we, we would run our own version of that Every, every fortnight. There was stuff, I'm sure we had stuff on climate change. We had all sorts of stuff. Oz also dipped their fingers in it. I don't think IT really bothered. I may be doing them an injustice, but I, I don't think these things were high on Mickey's agenda. Um, having said that, but these were very much what now is absolutely, as you say, rote. There wasn't a woman's paper as such until Rosie Boycott, who was then my girlfriend, founded with Marsha Rowe, Spare Rib, and that was, what, 70... I think, yeah, maybe before. No, I think it was 72. And there was Gay Times. There were all of these things that were up and coming. Um, there may, I'm, I'm not sure what was up and coming in the, in the green area. Um, it's a good point. I wonder if we even used green as, as it is used now. Um, maybe ecology. I don't eco, know. I think yes. Mm. Ecology, I think would have been more would have been more mm. more more automatic. But yes, these were the things that we were aware of, we were concerned with, and they were probably the, the most interesting stuff that the the counterculture did. Um, the other thing that I do think, well, as 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 you probably know from the book, and I've written about it before elsewhere. I mean, I think probably the design side of it at its best was remarkable. And Oz was a very good example of this because they had Martin Sharp, who was a great artist, who sadly, like so many of the others, is dead. I didn't interview Martin. I, he was back in Australia. But, um, you know, I think the, the, the Magic Circus issue of Oz, number 16, is probably the greatest thing the underground press ever did. And was, I mean, now I know that he would have been basing himself on Dada and all sorts of things like that. Then I probably didn't really know. So let's uh, let's forward, sort of fast forward. So you are at Friends, and, and then what happens with you next? And how do we get to the genesis of this epic work? I I I I left Friends. I think around August seventy. I think yes. Some, and then I had a brief period of in a sort of very amateur way dealing dope. I think. And then I think 
Tony Elliott asked me to come and work for Time Out, so I did that for a while. Then Richard Neville asked me to edit Oz after the trial. We're in 71 now. And I did that for a while. And then I think at some stage... No, I think after... after no, I tell a lot, I've missed one. Inc., which was Richard's supposed newspaper, which never really happened. It did, but it got taken over by other people. Went much further to the left, and I'd long gone anyway. Um, so let's think. Time Out, Inc., Oz, and then finally IT. I also spent a period in, 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 in three months in America in New York, which was fun. Then basically I started, you know, freelance doing freelancing. I did in 1976. I did a book called Diary of a Masseurs. Diary of a Masseurs, written by Angie Heath. It was supposed to be Connie Heath, as in Conyo, cunt. And um, but unfortunately, I, I, I wasn't allowed that. But it was a tribute to the then prime minister. And a friend of mine was was some um, was um, working at I think it was New English Library and said, "What do you want? I've got some diary. You know, one of these diary of. Do you want to be a schoolgirl, a lady wrestler, or a masseuse?" I said, uh, "I said well, I'll do the schoolgirl." He said, "No, hang on, the schoolgirl's gone." I don't remember that on your list of works on your website. Oh, well, that's funny that isn't it? Um, it did very very well. In Wormwood Scrubs, where I sent a copy to a friend of mine who was then unfortunately resident, and he said it vanished into Wormwood Scrubs, came back just the cover. <laughs> and um, so I did that. And then did, just started doing bits and bobs and bits, but also started working for Felix Dennis a bit, mm. freelance again. At some point, you must have decided, right, that, that those times, I mean, the subtitle of the book is Voices from the English Underground, 1961 to 1971. At some point, you must have decided that that was a time that was past and that you needed to record it or help record it, the, the, record those voices. So how did that come about? You know, how did you get to the point of thinking? Because for anybody who doesn't know, this is a big book. Uh, and I know from talking to, John, John, talking to Jonathan previously, um, it's a sort of fraction of, of, of what he recorded. And it's, it's, it's a dipper, I would say this. You can open it any page because it's just structured on themes and questions and ideas. And it's got 101 participants of the counterculture talking about things. I want to talk about how you actually structured it later. But So just tell us, how, how did it come about? How did you have this idea, I've got to do this thing? I, what I did, I mean, I, I started off doing, you know, in the 70s, I, I did that silly book on Diary of Masseurs under a pseudonym. I then got, I think I did some, I did some little dictionaries of quotations. Then I did bigger dictionary of quotations. And then I did a, my first slang dictionary in 84. And, and then I heard through a mutual friend that Jonathan Cape, particularly Dan Franklin, the editor, wanted someone to do a history of the 60s. And I did something I'd never done before. I summoned up my courage and I rang him up. I mean, literally, my friend. And I said, I hear you want me to do a history of the 60s. And Dan Franklin, being a very charming man, you know, sort of gulped and said, well, you better come and have lunch. And so I did. And we took it from there. I mean, but it wasn't me thinking, oh, I want to record this. Okay. What it what became very obvious, though, was that I was in this phenomenally privileged position because no one had asked these people the questions before. So they'd all got these I won't say they were bursting to tell them, but once they got underway, they were often bursting to tell them. And they enjoyed it. And they gave me wonderful stuff. The stuff didn't always um, 
jibe with the next person I interviewed because the wonderful thing about doing an oral history is everybody remembers it differently, including me, as much as I remember anything anymore. Um, and so I got all these different versions. I mean, you know, if anybody picks up the book and goes to the, the, the bit on the, the naming of IT, who named it? Why was it named? What was the original name? What was the room they were doing in it? Who was there, etc.? Everybody will tell you different things. Days in the Life was is an oral history of the counterculture, alternative society of the hippie 60s, as experienced in London. Some 110 of the period's movers and shakers were interviewed, and their reminiscences, often at odds, and in many cases brought out for the very first time, provide a unique tapestry of the era. Published in 1988, the book was amongst the very first to address that world, too often set in stone of simplistic fantasy and media stereotypes. I agree. I mean, I it, I wrote it, that, but nonetheless, it sounds like a bit of a publisher's puff, but it's yeah, true, it though. And I mean, I'm, I'm... it is true, and I, and it's, I, as I say, I was phenomenally lucky. I probably wouldn't have, would I have realised that it was the first? I mean, as far as I'm concerned, it was the first. I mean, I, I certainly on that scale, and I and I, I mean, the only two people who wouldn't, well, there were people who wouldn't talk to me, but the only two that I really missed was that Caroline Coon wouldn't talk to me. Why? Um, why I don't know. She just didn't want to, I believe. And Shemaine Greer wouldn't. I saw I was on a TV thing with, um, and she and I said, "Well, look, I'm doing this book. Would you would you be willing?" I don't do nostalgia, <laughs> and I thought, "Fuck <laughs> you." <laughs> anyway, quite funny. but actually, you know, 110 interviewees is quite a lot, and it, well, you, was... you tape them all. So I mean. I'm not, I can't even begin to think how you sort of like produced that in terms of um, setting up all those interviews. I've and got wait. on my bicycle and I, and <laughs> Norman Tebbit would like this. No, but I literally got on my bicycle and, and fortunately most of them were still in Notting Hill. Right. I mean, so I started off doing it in 1986 and I did it 1986, 1987 and it came out, I think, the, the in those days it used to be March and October so I think it was the October run we had a wonderful party at the ICA everybody who'd been in the book was there it was just heaven it was the, you can imagine there every all these people who hadn't seen each other mm. for 20 years it was a lovely party I mean it is everybody and there's people there's people represented from all the kind of walks of life there's some famous people like Paul McCartney some of the people you mentioned uh, you know Mick Farron and you know and all those people Jenny Fabian there's never there's, there's there's countless numbers of them in there and they're from music from Words from press. I, I did touch on rock and roll, but when I talked to McCartney, it was very much about him designing the wallpaper for, um, not for IT, but for, for, the, for the art shop that uh, Miles ran. Um, when I, Indica? I, Indica, thank you. Um, and, and it was that side of thing. And, it was, and McCartney, as I recall it, was very much into saying, you know, for the first time, as far as I was aware, um, you know, John. Everybody gives John the, you know, the, the the credit for being the cultural one and the countercultural one, but it was me. It was me. <laughs> the interesting thing about Paul McCartney from reading this is that he was very much doing stuff and influenced by it and part of it, sort of almost in a way apart from his life as a Beatle and then as you know Paul McCartney and Wings. I mean, he 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 pumped money into things, didn't he? He was. You know, he was on the scene. But it was important for him to talk to you about the counterculture and about those times, the underground, whereas he probably isn't, wasn't interested in talking about how he wrote yesterday. Well, I made it very clear that he wasn't going to get any of those questions. One of the um, things which I love about it is that, so, you know, I can open it fairly randomly, but you've got, you've got a thing here which just says 101 Cromwell Road. This is an address. I don't know who lives there now, but I imagine it's fairly 
affluent person. Mm. Um, and you just get these people, various people involved, talking about this particular address. Now, this is an address which later on went to be fairly disastrous in Sid Barrett's life. You know, it was the kind of, it seemed to be the place where Barrett, you know, was getting regularly dosed by acid and which maybe sort of, you know, sent him off. But at some point, it's, according to, you know, Days in Life, it's owned by, uh, or it's run by a guy called Nigel. And uh, there's a drug bust. says, somebody turned up at 101 Cromwell Road from the States who knew John. And they brought several thousand trips with them. Everybody was having a final time. And then the police walked in. Somebody threw a load into the garden. The police grabbed it. There were 4,000 trips concealed in a doorknob in another flight in the neighbourhood. There was a bit of mass hysteria. And the guy who was the ringleader came round to Redcliffe Square. I've got to get out of the country, he said. The police have taken my passport. So I said, here, have mine. So he did. <laughs> And they got out of the country with it. I reported the passport lost. <laughs> that was that. And then somebody else called Virginia Clive Smith, Smith yes. says, the police came in through the door and John threw all these sugar cubes out of the window into the garden and a policeman caught the bag. They tried to get him on ergotamine, but they couldn't. Acid was still legal, right? So this is quite a yeah, little. Yeah. Um, but it's pretty nightmarish. It went through the Orbele and it was extremely serious. And then it turns out that the guy, John, they try and, they try and prosecute him under the, uh, the Poisons Act because ergo, is, which acid kind of vaguely comes from, is a poison. Uh, and they bring in Hoffman, Albert Hoffman from Switzerland, to, to sort of explain how acid's made. They, these experts in court end up sort of squabbling with each, with each other about how you actually make acid in front of the judge uh, and who sort of dismisses the case, you know, the guy's off. But John Eason, he's, according to Days in Life, he's a, he's a changed person. He wouldn't have anything to do with drugs anymore. He didn't take another drug for at least 10 years. He was so miserable, he'd have been much happier if he had taken them. One night at Ronnie Lang's house, R.D. Lang, the anti-psychiatrist psychiatrist, I got Lang to pass a joint to him and we managed to get him stoned for the first time in 10 years. He was quite happy. I think after that he left England, returned to New Zealand and got himself a job and rejoined society. He was a very strange man, Sam. I didn't know him that well, but I didn't really know him at all. He used to hang around Marcusons and he was a terribly miserable guy. (laughs) He He was writing a film script. Hardly, hardly alone in that, um, which he was very obsessive about, but I don't think he ever finished. I may be, may be being very unfair. What this book is, is there's a series of themes like that. It could be 101 Cromwell Road, you know, and that address itself becomes a kind of theme running through various stories. Uh, so you did all the interviews, taped them all, and then you got this massive amount of material. I mean, we know that... Put it onto a database is what I did. Very early days. So you transcribed it all. Well, no, when I transcribed them, yes, each paragraph would be labelled 101 LSD, the Speakeasy Club, whatever. I'm thinking of Jenny, you know, whatever it might be. And then you could search and say, right, I want everything about the Speakeasy. And I'd get my 10 or my 20 or my 100 paragraphs with the names attached, and then I'd start... I, I, I may have even printed them out. I mean, it was very early days, <laughs> and shuffled them and made this... I mean, I didn't... I didn't really cut very much. I mean, and I took in a thousand-page manuscript to the publishers, and they freaked. <laughs> I mean, this is actually... It is a, we cut it, it back to two by two-thirds. I think it's 300,000 or something, and it was yes, going to be more a, like four. It's approaching 500 pages. Yeah. I would like to have seen, seen it all there, but that's me. And Dan did a fantastic job. The lawyering alone was, was, took a day. You mean... Um... Lawyering is when you sit down 
as we are sitting now and across the table is not you, but a lawyer who's saying, now, look, you can't have this. Did this really happen? Can you prove it? <laughs> no. And the publisher who, should, you know, obviously doesn't want to be involved in libel suits, so says, right, out, out, and, and on you go. It took a day. It was very soul-destroying. Although, again, it was done very well. I, I, I'm not going to be silly about that. I wanted but. to sort of uh, just, you know, do a little bit from Paul McCartney, your interview with Paul McCartney, because I thought this was quite telling in a way. And this is him, this is under the Sergeant Pepper section. Uh, and Paul McCartney said, much, much later when I went on tour with Wings, we got to some university somewhere, Nottingham, I think, and a student said to me, God, you know, man, around the time of Sergeant Pepper, we really thought it was going to change the world. What happened? Looking at me as if it was sort of my fault. <laughs> In actual fact, I don't really think that we thought we were going to change the world as much as you thought we were going to change the world. We ourselves were just living in the world. And OK, if things change through a bit of meditation and through a bit of vegetarianism or through a better relationship with the business thing, then that's great. But that's what we were always up for. Quite selfishly motivated, I suppose. In a way, incidentally selfish. For me, he's absolutely right. And if they who actually had... And, and, of course, they did change the world in cultural ways, I would suggest. No doubt about it. Um, and that was, you know... But, but for those of us who in no way changed the world, um, it, it, you know, it, was, it was a wonderful fantasy. I can only talk for myself, and I'm a cynical old bugger, and I was a cynical young bugger, so, you know... Well, maybe we should uh, finish this section on with his words in again in the same interview, um, where he says, and this is Paul McCartney of the Beatles talking, don't forget here. So, I'm sure we did change a lot of things, but without any sort of campaign to change it. It was just as a group of people we were talking openly about new ideas, and some of them filtered into society, and some of them are still about. Couldn't put it better. Couldn't put it better, right? And that's what we I were mean, all, I guess that sums up what all of us are doing. Yeah. Too many words in that, I've forgotten. Great that. stuff. Well, it's full of great stuff like that. Now, Jonathan, we're now going to move on to the second section because, of course, you are our greatest lexicographer of slang. You know, you've written and compiled these vast works on slang. First of all, what is slang? Slang, to me, is the counter-language. And it's called the counter language. I, I'm not the first person to call it that, but I've always I've, I've said it a lot, so I sort of publicised it within the circles who want to know what slang is. Um, it's because my gauge for putting a word into the dictionary, and it's a very wide gauge, and is 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 this word sedition? Is it in some way taking the piss? Be it hardcore politically, be it very softcore. Um, saying fire in a crowded theatre, as it were, or fuck in a church, or whatever you, whatever, whatever yeah, rows your boat, as slang says. Um, it, to me, is it's got to have some kind of seditious, some kind of contrary... It's the great linguistic contrarian. It, it's always uprooting, it's always overturning, it's, all, it's always teasing, it's always taking the piss, it's doing that kind. It's, it's, one could say it's negative, but I'd like to think that in many cases it's creative. And I'm perfectly well aware of the fact that, yes, there are a lot of things in slang which are either infantile or are, seem to be obscenity for its own sake, but one, I think there is a good argument um, that obscenity in its way, which anyway fluctuates into what people think is obscene and what people don't think is obscene, is extremely seditious, is extremely countercultural, 
when used in certain in certain arenas. So to me, that's the most important thing about slang. See, I love this uh, definition. You know, uh, the you know the counter language, or I suppose you could just say countercultural language. Could you? It, it, that... it depends how wide you want to cast it. For instance, what is more of a counterculture than criminality? Right. I mean, you are literally living and working in the face of the culture, and you're smashing it to the best of your ability and taking advantage of it and so on and so forth, doing lots of negative things. Um, and criminal slang, as we record it, as slang is recorded, is the Fonz at Origo is the beginning of all slang. Um, I believe that the nature of humanity is that if we have a yes, then our automatic response is to create a no. I want to I want to pin something very specific down, is which is that the actual word slang. Where did that come from? Where does oh, that come from? The actual word slang. People have come up with all sorts of things. The most obvious being the s in secret and the lang in language. Mm -hmm. It's secret, but um, it doesn't turn up till 1756 in the context of meaning words. Before that, it turns up as meaning a bit, a bit of sleight of hand and stuff like that. And you can have slang weights, which have been, which, you know, somebody's holding down their dodgy. thumb on the... Yeah, dodgy indeed. It's a very difficult one. Mm. But it's different than Argo, right? And, uh, or rubric? Well, or... not if you're in France, you see. I'm not trying to be a smart ass. Argo in France means slang. Okay. Argo here is what I would prefer to call jargon with a small j, and small o, occupational slang. The, the words that you have if you're in a given job, are words you use to to describe, say, a chisel or something, but you don't call it a chisel, you call it whatever. Um, you mean the big chisel, you mean the little chisel, whatever it might be, and those have got their own words. And those are not what I call... They are slang, but they're work-specific slang, and and, and I, I tend to sidestep that stuff. So there was the... Um, uh, uh... Is it Polari? The kind of Polari is Polari is interesting. Secret language. Isn't well, Polari is 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 originally what was called lingua franca. Lingua franca was a, a a a merchant seaman's language that you used to talk with the people with whom you traded, and this this seems to have filtered into the theatre because a lot of and the reason that a lot of names for the ropes you use in the theatre to haul stuff up and down, these days you probably don't use ropes, it's probably much more sophisticated, but it was in the 19th century. And the names of ropes you use on ships are the same. Betters were employing ex-sailors to climb up and down and, and haul stuff up. And because the theatre is stereotypically linked to the gay community, then that language passed. So Polari went from being... A trading language, you can watch it moving gradually until you get to the sort of 30s, 40s, 50s, and then you get it gets to the stage when you have well, on, on, on hugely popular BBC radio programme, um, fronted by a comedian man called Kenneth Horn, with various people like Kenneth Williams. Super Camp. Well, that's quite subversive, isn't it? Sneaking it onto that was very uh, subversive. That was amazing. I mean, looking back on it, it's very much a voyage of discovery, to put it mildly. I love this word you say. It's seditious. So it, there's something anti about it. Counter. Well, when you think that the alternative is standard English, mm. slang is counter English. You could say, although so. I mean, in a very literal way, it 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 so eighty five percent of slang is not 
new words. It's not, it's actually taking a word, dog, dog, four-legged thing, um, four-legged creature with fur. Slang has 210 variations. You know, you take the straight line, you take the standard, you play with it, and you offer up, maybe with a small s, but a seditious rendering thereof. And that, that is the, the great bulk of slang is like that. And so to focus, right, I'm glad you mentioned the word cat, actually, as it happens, because I thought we could talk specifically about, let's, talk, let's call it countercultural slang or the slang of the sort of hippie, the beat in the hippie era in the 70s. Cat being a word that was used, and I've got I've got a, a a classified ad here from your old paper, IT. Is there a chick in Oxford who would share her pad and her life with Pleasant Freak? That there you go, 1971 IT. I right, love it. so I love it. you've got that chick, uh, pad, and freak. Right, you mentioned cat. I mean, I've got another one here, young gay with hangups from repressed childhood needs pad again. Uh, with small, uh, or preferably small commune. No job at present, but can probably find one and some bread with some help. He goes on to actually say that he's, uh, play, he's got a place in group therapy secured. But, uh, but, I'm um, very pleased to hear it. Um, <laughs> God, but I mean, let's just go to that, because obviously you know, that kind of connects us in a way with Days in Life as well, is this that, you know, all those words, you know, I want you to tell us, Jonathan, Right. How did, they, how did they get here? How did they come about? Where did they come from? And, you know, that kind of whole lexicon of the 60s, which, which so much dates that classified ad, right? It completely dates it, doesn't it? Where they swam across the Atlantic, basically. <laughs> or maybe they flew. Um, they are, I mean, rock and roll went west um, in what they call the English invasion. There was what I would call an African-American invasion linguistically. I mean, a lot of those words have been used by jazz people in the 40s and the 50s. And whether we hippies knew it, that was what we were talking. Because they were the, it, was the, it was the hip language. It was what came across. But one of the things that's very important to any discussion, in my opinion, of the counter-language, is that, is that, of the counterculture slash language, is that and I'm talking very much as a lexicographer here, that it's very frustrating because there weren't people writing, the, writing it down. Outside the underground press, you've not got novelists sort of keep... The, and, you cert, and, and if you look at rock and roll lyrics, they're not... If, if, you, look, if you compare classic... Let's just say the Stones, the Who, the Beatles and all the rest, compare them to somebody now in the London East End doing drill or grime, or someone in New York doing rap, or whatever it might be. The different, those are telling a tale in many cases. They're, certainly to me, as an old guy, but they're opening up a huge vocabulary of which I had no idea whatsoever. And I think that that's part of the, the, the enjoyment, I would imagine, for those, for those who are writing these lyrics. And I would suggest that they, they, they are actually broadcasting all around the world to people much nearer their own ages. Forget me. Um, this, this new and fascinating vocabulary. We, th that wasn't being done. 
if the Stones were recycling some black guy's blues song, there might be one or two words, but there probably wouldn't be. It, they, the Beatles, you, you're hard put to find much slang in the Beatles. I'm sure people who know this much better than I do will can, can get in touch and say, oh, but didn't you notice that? But quite honestly, no, I didn't notice it, and I didn't think to go to those kind of sources because I didn't expect to find anything there. So there's that. You've talked to Jenny Fabian. I've been through Groupie, her wonderful book, and I loved it, but it didn't give me any slang. You know, again, we've got we've got maybe four words. I think I said this, and and it's, you know, it's it's frustrating. She does refer to plating people as in plating oral sex. is rhyming slang, good old rhyming slang, probably from the nineteen twenties. Plate the meat, eat, eat <laughs> for late, or cunnilingus. Um, so that's that's you know, but it's it's a real trad London word. I mean, but see, that's fascinating. But that's you see, when facts. I encountered that in '69, I'd never met that before. It wasn't happening. You might get you know, there'd be maybe a small article in in, in a tabloid newspaper. Do you want you know? Do you know how your te- what your teenagers are saying? Or you know, <laughs> be hip like your teenagers, whatever it might be. But on the whole, it wasn't being slapped down. I mean, again, I think perhaps people didn't really care that much. They didn't really need more than an article in the tabloids. They didn't want to become intimately concerned in the lexicography of it. Quite understandable. But it was, for me, I'm, as I say, I'm talking to a lexicographer whose entire life is based on trying to find instances of stuff. Um, very frustrating that it's very hard to go to the 60s and find a, a, a solid... You know, a solid home of this stuff. I mean, right, but you're saying that that one of the themes, at least, it's quite interesting to hear that that some of it could be in London anyway, East End London stuff, mixing with stuff that's coming from America hmm. in that whole kind of cultural, you know, export of music, clothes, fashion, you know, all that stuff that's coming over. And you're also saying specifically jazz, Black American or Af- African. Well, you're American. seeing it in the nineteen teeny bit in the First World War. Bit more with jazz in the twenties, bit more with swing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. A lot more with rock and roll. A huge amount with um, counterculture and so on. So it's and and you know just black 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 popular entertainment. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. But it's interesting that I was reading a list from 1935 of criminal language given out to detectives in the West Midland Police Force. I mean, most of it is English English slang. I mean, the only thing that's missing is put the bracelets on, Gav, it's a fair cop. Although I think fair cop comes in and bracelets aren't in, but derbies are, which is another word for handcuffs. But even there, you're getting just a few Americanisms coming in. And and you can see, you know, this is 1935. It's beginning to bubble up. People are beginning to be able to to use this in a popular way. And, and, and of course, they are. They, they come from black. Well, they're... they're they're made possible by by black culture, even if people don't know it is black culture. I mean, that again was us, the hippies, I think, because for everybody who knew that what we were talking had come out of of, of swing or before that, um, out out of jazz, there were idiots like me who didn't, and I'm sure I wasn't alone. But the actual adoption, consciously or unconsciously, of those words helped to identify you. I mean, including you specifically, Jonathan, or as a hippie, right? Or as as a countercultural person, or in the fifties as a beatnik, right? I mean, and it became a way of, like the hair, like the clothes, of identifying you as a young person against some of your more straighter. As it it's were. a linguistic uniform. I doubt if I'd have come on all hippie slang to my parents. 
Right, so you could turn it on. Oh, of course, you turn it on and turn it off. That's always been the case, hasn't always it? Right. Been okay. the case, I would have thought. But again, I, I, I just, to me, I think the interesting thing is this: is this trickle becoming a stream, becoming a river, becoming a tsunami of Black American language. Which is, I mean, now you've got a situation. I mean, there was a thing. I think it was Kanye West in his, in his, dare I say, saner days, when uh, quite a long time ago, about ten years ago, pointing, you know, basically saying there ought to be a moratorium. We ought to be allowed our, we Black America should be allowed our own language for for a year each time, rather than you just snatching it up and fucking with it. But, you know, that doesn't is, happen. Doesn't happen, particularly right. with the internet. I mean, one of the things that changed in in slang is 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 the speed of uptake. I mean, it took, you know, as I say, you start, you can see the gradual arrival of African-American language of slang in into the UK. But it takes, well, 30 years, 40 years. Now, what does it take? You know, if there's something coined across the across the Atlantic, how long does it take to get to get to, right. the, get to the UK? Right, right, 30 right. days? 30 I mean, days, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is, so that's fascinating. So a lot of those 60s words, you're. 30 years, 40 years, would have put them back in the 20s. 30s. Well, I think people would have picked them up from the beats, as you mm. say quite correctly, and who, who in turn, well, the beatniks, who would have got them from the American beats. Who, you, know. you know, some of those words have remained in use and remained okay to say. So, you know, I frequently say, that's cool. Yeah, you know, well, uh, that seems to be okay, certainly amongst my generation anyway. Um, but if I started to talk about, I'm just going to go back to my pad, it would sound anachronistic, cheesy, wouldn't it? I mean, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, that some of those words retain their currency, but others Why just word very dated. Why retains its currency? Why word B does not? I do not know, and I think it's very... I mean, the perfect example is the word fuck. If you go back to a dictionary of 1598 by a man called John Florio, it's a dictionary, it was called The World of Words with extra E's all over the place. And it was an Italian to English dictionary. And he has in this dictionary, let me remember this, he has the word fotuere in Italian. And he, tra and he has translations and he has to jape, to sard, to swive and to fuck. What has become of jape, sard and swive? Well, I think Jape exists in Billy Bunter books, public school as much as, you know, and those were back in 1900, like 1920. Like Jolly Jape, a sort of Indeed. joke. Swive, I think, comes up in, in, in sort of sword and sorcery stuff. Um, sard, the only use of sard in the last couple of hundred years, I think, was teach your grandmother to sard, which predated teach your grandmother to suck eggs. But what's the one that survived? Fuck. Why has fuck survived? That's the question. Is it the slap of flesh on flesh, which I think may well be? It's got a nice slang. Does is good on is keen on echo echoisms, and I'm not on the matter here. Um, but I have no proof of that. But why is that? Why did that word last and the other ones not? I have no idea whatsoever. And that's true of great ranges of of, of terms. So Booze has lasted. From 1530, the first the first time you come across the word booze, it's spelt differently. It's spelt bows, B-O-W-S-E, but it's the same thing. It means a, a drink. And, and it's there in the first ever glossary of slang in English, criminal slang, criminal beggars. Um, it's called the Highway to the Spittle House. And it, it um, Spittle House is hospital. 
Right. Okay. Um, it was Bart's. It was it was mm. set it was set outside. But and and you know so that's lasted since fifteen thirty two when this this poem came out. I want to go back to uh, the the, uh, the beats uh, for a moment because when I read on the road a very long time ago, one of the things which I think I kind of fell in love with a bit was Kerouac's language, as in, but specifically with these kind of words, it was just really struck me how important language is to young people, whether you're reading Kerouac or whether you're a Stilyagi in the 1950s or whether you're a, a, a young hippie in the 60s or whether you're a practitioner or a lover of grime in the wherever we are now. It's an important part of your identity which sets you apart from your more boring contemporaries. It's always been, I mean, slang has always worked to not just to keep people out, but to unify people who are in. And that's, that's I think, it's always going to be like that. It, there's a great deal of pleasure. I remember vividly uh, misusing in about 1961 the word pad and being you know, roundly abused for it, and correctly so, I'm sure. One thing I do think you were saying about broad, but of course, you know, one of the things that multi-ethnic multi London English use, feds. There are no federal authorities in this country, but feds is used incredibly widely to mean the British bobby. And there's lots of stuff. Well, I won't say lots because you'll want examples and I can't think, but that's the one that crosses my mind. So it's, and you could say, I mean, you know, the, 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 the loan words, my God, it's most of English slang these days. I mean, but it was so, that was why it was so fascinating reading this pre-World War II, no GIs staying, none of that, you know, being billeted and so on, to, to go back to this world where, where, English slang was English. Perhaps we'll be giving it back after Brexit. Who knows? Yeah. So the GIs coming to Soho, of course, you know, when the, the clubs around here and stuff, that would have that they would have fed in as well, wouldn't they? The, fed the... in hugely. And I mean, and, and you wanted to be, this is it. I mean, you wanted to be with the cool kids, whether that was the 60s, the 30s, the 40s, the 1830s, whatever it might be. That's what people wanted to be. And one of the ways, as you say quite rightly, is to brandish your wonderful slang vocabulary, which not only affirms your coolness, but really screws with the people who don't know what the hell you're talking about. So um, let's come full circle um, then, Jonathan. So you've written these amazing works on slang, which is, I imagine is always going to be ongoing. Well, you're going to keep going. As, and then... as long as I can. And then this exists. I hope it always exists, Days in the Life. Um, it's a wonderful thing. Where can people find out more about you? Probably the best place is my dictionary mm. because I write blogs to go with that occasionally and so do other people. And the dictionary is, is greensdictofslang.com. But you can double-check those. I'm so bad at that. <laughs> um, and, and there's also a thing I do which people might enjoy called the timelines of slang. Slang is to do with themes, so... You see them coming over and over again. It's also to do with its favourite topics. And what the timelines do is, is you take the 1750 synonyms for having sex, you put them in chronological order, and you can see how the great governing principle of sex in slang is man hits woman. And you can see these words in one way or another being repeated over and over. But they're just interesting to see what, what words people have used for, in slang for a given topic over 500 years. And and not everything runs to 500 years, but there are 1,400 penises, 1,400 vaginas, and so on and so forth. These are slang's obsessions, dope and sex and rock and roll, and rock and roll in the widest possible sense. This is what it's good at. <laughs> well, I think that's a perfect place to leave it. 
Um, Jonathan, thank you so much both for that trip through the underground and that wonderful wander through the weird and wild world of slang. My pleasure, as they say. I'll put details in the show notes of how to check out your website. And for anybody who hasn't read it, if you love counterculture, you're going to love Jonathan's book, Days in the Life, or she's from the English Underground, 1961 to 1971. Also his book, Them, on immigration, and his amazing dictionaries of slang. Such great stuff. And if you come across his autobiography of a massa, do let me know. I'd love to read it. It's probably worth quite a bit. So that's it. It was a kind of double episode squeezed into one. Good value, right? You can check out more of our stories on the underground and the counterculture at www.bureauoflostculture.com. I was Stephen Coates. See you next time. Yep.